So good evening. This is the People's School for Marxist Leninist Studies. The course that we've been working on is the history of the communist movement in the United States, specifically from the period of when we were part of the Socialist International, all the way up till the part of the 1917 revolution, the birth of the Third International, the Communist International. We then went up to the Popular Front period. We're up to the part where we spoke about chronologically. We went into the history of the Popular Front. We started to talk about that. And we're up to the time of the early 60s. We talked about the youth group, and I'm going to start from there tonight. The youth group in the Communist Party was called the W.E.B. Du Bois Clubs in the early 60s, named after W.E.B. Du Bois. Richard Nixon went on TV and said that the communists were trying to manipulate people by using the name Du Bois Clubs, which everybody thinks is the Boys Clubs of America. Anybody know what that is, the Boys and the Girls Clubs? Yeah. And he said we were fooling people by using the word Du Bois, which sounds like the boys. Can you believe this? <laughs> That's what he said on national television, level of intelligence of some of our political leaders. So that was in the 60s, named after the black liberation leader who organized the NAACP, one of the first people who ran it, and was the editor of their newsletter called Crisis, which they still put out. Then in the mid-60s, there was a thing going on in the country. Those of us who are around remember it. I call it a thing because it was basically an uprising among a lot of white college students and among black people in the ghetto called the Black Panther Party. That was at the same time in the whites within college, went to college, we were called the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and their positions were civil rights and the war in Vietnam, opposition to the war in Vietnam. Also, very important for people to know this, there was a book called Containment and Change, Containment and Change, written by Carl Oglesby, who was one of the leaders of SDS, came out with this book. It was not a communist book, and his position was that we should be not so victim to anti-communism. It was basically an attack in the liberal community against anti-communism. That was the name of the book, and that was the beginning of the change. Now, quickly, SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. Let me just give you a little one-sentence history of them. They originally came out of the Student League for Industrial Democracy, S-L-I-D. It was the student group of something called the League for Industrial Democracy. It was a social democratic formation of a center-right philosophy. It was anti-communist, anti-Soviet. The youth group broke away on this period of the 60s, 62 or 63, and formed this SDS, which was much more open to left-wing ideology. They were not communists, but they were against anti-communism. A little PS, SDS eventually grew into an organization in the late 60s that became known as an organization that was friendly to Marxist youth. And at Wagner College, I remember sitting in the meeting where one of the leaders from the SDS national office, which was in New York in Prince Street, the Prince Street office, came down and said, 
we have discussions of whether we should become a Marxist organization. Up until that time, they were not a Marxist organization. SDS was a generally big tent situation where everybody came in who was opposed to U.S. foreign policy, and many of them were opposed to anti-communism. And that was the beauty of it, in my opinion. Once they decided to become a Marxist group, then they started to divide among each other, and each tendency in the Marxist movement started to attack the other, and eventually SDS fell apart. In the early 70s, it fell apart. That's the history of SDS. Now, SDS and the Black Panther Party, they were cumulatively notified, known as what we call the new left, being that we were not the same as the old left. The old left had been basically decimated during the McCarthy period, which was the communist movement. It had been decimated, and therefore, when the new left was coming of age in the early 60s, they didn't have any model to look for. There was nobody to look and follow. There was no torch to pick up and carry through, except for the small, small, minute group of people that came out of the CP. Half of them were what we call red diaper babies, which means they were the sons and daughters of Communist Party members or their grandparents were in the communist movement. And except for that small group, we really didn't have any connection with the old left. The old left was also associated with the Soviet Union, the struggles between Trotskyists and followers of Stalin, etc. Then comes the period of 68, where there was a closing down of the universities, mainly by the SDS and the equivalent of their supporters in the Black Panther movement. Also want to mention that Black Panther movement was the beginning, in my opinion, of bringing in Maoism into the black community. There was a small group around people in the North Carolina. Anyway, he uh -huh. was a Maoist. He had blacks okay. with guns was the whole thesis behind them. Do you remember his oh, name? Oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, the publication was actually called Negroes with Guns. Correct. And the publisher, who was an African-American, at the time, Negroes, it was a widely used term for African-Americans that African-Americans themselves widely used. Anyway, the publisher ended up fleeing the United States, and then he went to Cuba, from which he broadcast Radio Free Dixie broadcasts into the United States. That's cool. His name was Robert F. Williams. And he originally, by the way, was the head of the NAACP in the Carolinas. I think it was South Carolina, I'm not sure. But one of the Carolinas, he was the head of the NAACP chapter. I don't know if he had any connection with the communist movement. I don't know about that. So that was in 68, 69, Radio Free Dixie. He was the first example I remember of African-Americans with guns being an issue in this country. And then I think it was picked up by the Black Panther Party. I'm going to leave it off at that. I'm going to ask for questions. I have a question with the old left being taken down by McCarthy, the new left coming up. Am I correct that all the people on the new left weren't looking at the Soviet Union anymore? Was that Sino-Soviet split where the new left was totally looking at the People's Republic of China and Mao? That's not my understanding. I lived through that period. My experience was definitely the Soviet Union was sidelined. But nobody really talked about China, in my experience, of the early new left. Oglesby. In his book, he doesn't even go into that, containment and change. So I don't think Mao or China came into that at all. 
from the new left. I think the beginning of it was sections of SDS. By the way, the one woman who came to our meeting in Wagner College, her last name was Duke, D-U-K-E. Nobody knows the name Duke. Uh, it's a very wealthy family. A... Her family owned a tobacco dynasty okay. in New Jersey. American Tobacco Company. And she was a petty bourgeois radical. And she used to come with designer clothes, which is what really stuck out, designer clothes. And she looked like an actress, like short pixie hair and very young, very sexual, that kind yeah, of thing. I think she was actually bourgeois, not petty bourgeois. Yeah, she was bourgeois. Based, based on the family. <laughs> right. So that's the answer, in my opinion. If anybody else wants to answer that, please. Maybe the only thing I have to ask in addition to that, when the invasion of Czechoslovakia happened, was there like attitude towards the Soviet Union like they were in the wrong? My impression is that they were basically mildly condemning. I remember the big thing was, why did the Soviet Union do this now during an election? Eugene McCarthy yeah, was running. I, I was wondering, was the relationship between the Chicago 7 or Chicago 8 and the Democratic Convention and SDS? Abby Hoffman. One of the names I remember. Yeah. Another one was a big fat pacifist who did Liberation Magazine. David Dillinger, he was big in Liberation Magazine, which came out of Lafayette Street in New York. Bobby Seale was an African-American. These were people that were involved with the demonstrations, as mentioned, and they were arrested. The famous picture of Bobby Seale is because he kept interrupting the proceedings they gagged him and chained him in a chair in the courtroom. Gagged him right. and chained him in the courtroom. Every, and there were pictures taken and drawings made of yep. that. And that became very synonymous with how American democracy was operating. Was that connected to SDS or was that apart from SDS? That was apart from SDS. That was apart. Do you know that the judge that was at the hearings and the trial was the same judge who prosecuted the Rosenbergs. That's right. Oh, was, really? Yes, yeah, Irv, the same judge. judge. Irving Kaufman. Holy shit. Wow. Yeah, Irving, Irving Kaufman. Irving Kaufman yep. The same judge that sent the Rosenbergs to the electric chair and killed them. That's true. And by the way, you'll see similarities that constantly between the Rosenberg period and the actors that were involved with that period and later on up until Trump, the famous Jewish fascist was what he was, conservative, who was a lawyer who was in that, who later died of AIDS. Yeah. And his he name, was. His a, name was Roy Cohn. Roy Cohn. Yeah, thank you. Roy Cohn. <laughs> so Roy Cohn was involved in that, and he was the same who was involved with just before Trump won. He was a friend of Trump. So it wasn't really part of SDS. SDS was really unique in a lot of ways, and it's unfortunate that it's self-destructive. And we should learn something from that. There's a proper place for a mass movement, and it should not be confused with the party. An attempt to make SDS, which was a mass student movement, into a Marxist organization was a big, big mistake. We needed allies in the liberal community who were not anti-communist, and we had them in SDS. And by the way, SDS had over 100,000 members. I wow. should mention that. Over 100,000 members. 
Even Staten Island, conservative Staten Island, we had a chapter at Wagner College. And when the split came, instead of being part of the split, my chapter became independent, which is the only thing we could do at the time. And we called ourselves Radical Action People, RAP. And RAP eventually became part of the movement to close down the university, Wagner College, in 1970 when Cambodia was invaded by Nixon. So it's an interesting history. This is my own understanding. I'm not going to make any bones about it here. I'm not pretending to give you a so-called objective history. I give you what I think is the truth as I see it. First of all, for the younger comrades, this 10-year period that stretched roughly from 1965 to 1975, it very nearly totally appeared, keyword here is appeared, to turn the United States upside down in all spheres, ranging from politics through culture, including the arts, film, music with rock and roll, women's rights, the black struggle for civil rights, the Latino struggle for civil rights, gay liberation, which first emerged on the scene, and a whole new attitude towards sexuality, a whole new attitude towards drugs, all down the line for good and bad in many, many different areas that seemed to completely transform the way society outwardly appeared. Someone had gone into a coma in 1963 and woken up 12 years later, they probably would not have recognized the country. It was that different. Now, I use the keyword here, appearances, because it did not fundamentally transform the capitalist nature of the relations of production. It did not abolish imperialism, although there was a great big movement against imperialism, probably the largest movement against imperialism that the United States had ever experienced, certainly since World War I, and possibly even larger than that. And in the area of the left, you had in general two different strands of the left, the old and the new. The old left was identified with the parties born in the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution, first and foremost the Communist Party the younger generation of which was in the W.E.B. Du Bois clubs. And the Du Bois clubs, which began after McCarthyism started to subside a bit, the Du Bois clubs mostly consisted of people who came from Communist Party families. And the Du Bois clubs later became the Young Workers Liberation League in 1970. And later on, they became the YCL, the Young Communist League of the CPUSA. So that was one strand. And the communist youth whose parents were in the party, they were not rebelling against their own parents. In fact, they were doing what their parents had done, and in many cases what their grandparents had done, and in some cases what their great-grandparents had done. In the CPUSA, I had the occasion to meet one comrade whose great-grandfather was in the party. And his father was in the party, his grandfather was in the party, his great-grandfather was in the party, and his great-great-grandfather had come from Russia and had known the Bolsheviks, and so on and so forth. So the young communists at that time, in the period immediately after McCarthyism, they were not rebelling against their parents. The same cannot be said of the new left. In most cases, even where the members of SDS or progressive labor or some of these other groups 
They came from liberal families. They were definitely rebelling against their parents. And sometimes it's good to use concrete illustrations to describe the point. And let me just share with you a real-life example drawn from some people who were very close to me in my own life. So when I was young, uh, beginning to deepen my understanding of revolutionary politics and really profoundly study Marxism, probably my foremost mentor was a man who had come of age in the 30s and had joined the U.S. Army to fight against fascism and later had gone to Harvard on the GI Bill and gotten his PhD there. And he pretty much did everything by the book. He got married. I think he only had one love of his life, was the same person. His rabbi in college encouraged him to start dating, was the person he married and who became the mother of his three children. And he lived a, you would call it, normal bourgeois or petty bourgeois life, a homeowner, I had a regular job and all of that and so on and so forth. The key point is he never really got in trouble with the law. He worked for Henry Wallace's Progressive Party campaign in 1948, and I was the candidate, the former vice president of Frank Liddell and Roosevelt, whom the Communist Party supported in 1948. So he was very close to, in and around the Communist Party, very pro-Soviet and all of that. But he kind of steered as far away from the contact with the law as possible. He understood what could happen to people through McCarthyism, and he, he sought to avoid that at all costs. His son was quite a different story, his oldest son. His oldest son, like his father, went to Harvard College, except he got very involved in Students for a Democratic Society. And when they started splitting off, what happened to SDS is, as soon as SDS moved away from its social democratic roots, and it had begun as an offshoot, the Student League for Industrial Democracy, SDS had originally begun as an offshoot of the social democratic movement, and then it moved away from that and rejected the anti-communism of social democracy. But when SDS began really getting deeply involved with Marxism and sort of turning towards that and attempting to become Marxists, then at once people, it was as if SDS, in the process of constructing its understanding of Marxism, it really built a tower of Babel, to use the biblical analogy. And everybody started splitting off into their different factions. There were some people who were pro-Albania, there were some people who were pro-China, there were some other people who were ultra-revolutionary, but not really in that vein, and still other people were really interested in taking up guns against the United States government, and other people were interested in training for that, so on and so forth. So it split off into several different currents, more or less organized. One of them, which was active in SDS, was kind of a totally organized faction or current within SDS, was the Progressive Labor Party. Now, that had originally begun as an anti-revisionist group that opposed the CPUSA on the grounds of the CPUSA having gone along with the Khrushchev line. So progressive labor began, along with a number of other groups that supported Stalin against Khrushchev and uh, rejected the line taken by most of the communist parties in the aftermath of Khrushchev's so-called secret speech, not so secret speech, really denouncing Stalin in 56. But eventually progressive labor 
expanded into SDS and pulled in a lot of young people, including the son of Harvard College, son of my mentor, and he joined PL. Now, unlike his father, the son's head was filled with ultra-revolutionary ideas. And instead of being the prudent communist like his father, you know, who dutifully is a homeowner and makes sure he doesn't get, you know, basically doesn't jaywalk or anything like that, the son, upon graduating from Harvard College, went down to the Armed Forces Enlistment Center and joined up, and the first thing he did was start distributing literature on base, encouraging the enlisted soldiers to turn their guns on the officers, because that's what PL wanted people to do. And this naturally landed him in the stockade, which is the U.S. Army's version of the brig. Basically, it's the jail and a court-martial and a bad paper. Bad paper is dishonorable uh, discharge. But he didn't really care because he was fired up with the ultra-revolutionary ideas, the revolution now. This thing is going down. What's the current anarchist concept? I'm sure you're familiar. You've heard about the website. It's going down. That was the feeling then. The feeling then was, it's going down. It's going to happen right now. Now, the older generation, the Communist Party, the older Communist Party generation, in retrospect, they did know better. They understood that this thing was truly not going to happen now. But the younger generation, as tends to happen historically, didn't really pay them much uh, attention. The younger generation felt it knew better. So that was a big split. Now, as far as the younger generation was concerned, of course, eventually they grew up, and along with that, some people matured. And what happened as the Marxist currents in SDS matured politically, the more mature currents within and in and around former SDS, as they matured, they overcame their previous anti-Sovietism and their previous suspicion and skepticism of the Soviet Union. So in 1968, when the Soviet Union came to the rescue of socialism in Czechoslovakia, the rescue, the Communist Party from the bourgeois supporters. So most of the SDSers and a lot of the new left at that time, they looked askance at that, at the very least, if they didn't outwardly oppose it. But as people stuck with Marxism and began to really learn it, study it and apply it and begin to master it, they grew to appreciate the Soviet Union. And there were some key developments in the 70s, starting with the mid-70s, but then going to the early 70s, but then to the mid-70s, that consolidated the shift away from anti-Sovietism and towards a newfound appreciation of the Soviet Union among the new left. And number one, the groundwork for this was laid when China began realigning itself with the Soviet Union following the rapprochement. China began realigning itself away from the Soviet Union and with the United States following Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger's visits to China in 1971. And that became very public when the mid-70s, China outwardly supported the CIA-backed military junta in Chile against the democratically elected Marxist government of Salvador Allende, when China supported right-wing rebels in Angola who were opposing the Cuban volunteers who came to the aid of the national liberation fighters. When China was supporting the same people that the South African apartheid government was supporting. And so that happened in the mid-70s. And at that point, people in many different groups, usually based in cities, like there was 
Socialist Union of Baltimore. There was the Potomac Socialist Union, the Philadelphia Workers Organizing Committee. They didn't have communist in the name in many cases. The Bay Area Socialist Organizing Committee, Line of March, and other groups, they started reorienting themselves away from their previous skepticism towards the Soviet Union. They rectified their line. I mean, that's the only word to describe it towards the Soviet Union, developed a more or less mature appreciation for the role of the Soviet Union in supporting the socialist countries and the national liberation movements. And that was helped along by real-world events, like principally the turn of People's Republic of China towards U.S. imperialism, that more than anything. And the fact that the Soviet Union still more or less steadfastly opposed imperialism. It supported Cuba. China began opposing Cuba. Soviet Union supported Vietnam, and China at some point invaded Vietnam and was encouraging Deng Xiaoping when he visited the United States, was encouraging the United States to crush Cuba. I mean, things like that. Let's open up to questions. Wasn't the split in SDS took place in the 1969 convention, and didn't a lot of the leadership of the SDS leave and form the Weather Underground, probably because of ideological reasons, but also because the frustration over the fact that there were hundreds of thousands of people who were coming out to demonstrate against the war and nothing was changing. So that's what my question is. The splits happened many different ways. One was called RIM-1, Revolutionary Youth Movement 1. Another one was called RIM-2, Revolutionary Youth Movement 2. Another one was called Prairie Fire. And another one was called Weathermen Underground. Uh, another group that split towards progressive labor, as Comrade mentioned, was the Worker Student Alliance. There were all these different factions and tendencies. That's exactly what happened. The slogans, I'll give you the slogan. Does anybody remember this, the Weatherman slogan? Bob uh, Dylan. need a weather vane to know which way the wind is blowing. Something like that. And that was Bob Dylan had that in one of his songs, I believe. Brainy and Umstick Blues, yeah. Then it was one by Prairie Fire. The idea is that in a prairie in the Midwest, when it catches a fire, it's uncontrollable. The wind takes it, nature takes it. Another one was the slogans, two, three, many Vietnams. Opposite the pacifist slogan. Their slogan is to have two, three, four, five, six. If you have this all around the globe, American imperialism would not be able to control, to put down the revolutions. But this is the thing that bothered me. None of it came out of a working class thinking. None of it talked about labor. None of it talked about building unions. None of them talked about Marx in the sense of the class struggle. Class struggle was never mentioned, never mentioned in SDS. That's very interesting. I just want to point that out. Okay, I want to go on. I definitely agree with that. I think the old left was far more effective than the new left. But mention something about in the 1960s, it looked like things were really changing but they didn't fundamentally change because they didn't address economic situations or class struggle. Is that because when you look at the Marxian concept of base versus superstructure, it's supposed to work with addressing the base, and it seemed like the kids in the 60s were trying to have a revolution in the culture. They weren't looking at the base. Am I wrong on that? Very quickly, there were different types. Remember, it was the time of the great demonstration in Pentagon. I remember that. I have buttons for it. And how the young people dealt with it, they went and they put a flower 
in the barrel of the gun, and they wore flowers in their hair. It was the cultural music at the time. There was a song that mentions flowers in your hair. I don't know if you remember, remembers those words. Levitating the Pentagon. Right, and there was a music, right? What was it called, the Thugs? The Fugs, F-U-G-S, East Village Group. They were the ones that put together that levitating the Pentagon thing. They totally spearheaded that, whatever you want to call it, guerrilla theater demonstration. Ed Sanders. The other thing was flower power. That was big, flower power, that term. So it was all kinds of non-working class. Remember, who built the CIO? The old left. Who built the anti-fascist movement in Spain? The old left. Who built the struggle for the Scottsboro boys on racism? The old left. I find the whole thing fascinating. The development of the new left is conditional, I think, to a broader significant qualitative change in the makings of American superstructure and ideology. You touched upon this very quickly. I think that this is extremely important information that you've given us especially your interpretation of the super-revolutionary tendency of the radical left, which seems to have stayed in some form or another among the ultra-left of our times today. Now, we need to remember not to repeat this error, any of us, ideologically or politically. As easy as it is to tout revolution, we are never really sure of the conditions which will come to foster revolution in our country until that opportunity is itself bestowed upon the party materially. Lenin and the Bolsheviks jump on an opportunity amid the mass contradictions of czarism. Now, of course, those conditions are radically different, given that we are living in the homeland of one of the most violent and brutal imperialisms the history of humanity has ever seen. I'm no prophet. That said, nobody else nor I can predict when the revolution will happen in our country, but we know for certain that it will come of an elevation of the resources of the party to the point where we'll be able to substantiate genuine material change in the social order. And we must look at our position now in the left of today as a faithful synthesis of the ideological unity of the old left and the actionable eagerness or the readiness for action of the new left. We need to look to succeed this political dichotomy of old left and new left and look to produce something that is more understanding of our true radical character and that will not become a stumbling block for itself. So the PCUSA, our friends and comrades in that organization, I think are currently on the path toward the construction of such a new definition of leftism, which returns to the core of our ideology, anti-revisionist Marxism, Leninism, and unity with the masses, especially of working people in this country to action. Thank you. Am I correct in understanding the SDS as kind of being one of these temporary surges in like a class consciousness that doesn't amount to a complete revolution, kind of like recently we had with Occupy Wall Street and other things like that? And if so, what prevented the SDS from being a more effective mass movement? Do we think it was more sectarian issue, this old left versus new left? Or what kind of problems did it face? There is a group called SDS, which is still around. As we know, it's the Maoist, it's one of the Frizzos. That's who it really is. But it's the same now as it was then in that it's not connected to the working class. And I think that's the answer to your question. Why do these things fizzle out? Why are they duds? Why do they go nowhere? Versus we were just talking about the real movements of the past, which made huge achievements. I mean, we think about Social Security, Medicare. I mean, this came during the Great Depression. That's the time we would think you wouldn't be fighting because you'd be looking for work. But we were fighting and winning. And why were we winning? because we were related to the working class and we were organized. And it was not 
this thing which they have now, which is like they're not workers. There's no mention of class like we mentioned. It's continuing today. There's these groups that go off in these directions today. And I just wanted to mention that, that we have to be careful of these groups. All right. Thank you, Comrade. We have to remember at this time in the late 60s and early 70s, we were at the height of the economy for the working class. There's probably more good jobs available than ever. And ever since, it's kind of been a decline in our standard of living, I believe. And so that must be taken in consideration for the contradiction of the new left. And the unions had more labor power. This was before Reagan. All right. Thank you, Comrade. That's all correct. I actually was a member of SCS, and I remember the convention in Chicago, the split between the radical left SCS, which became Weatherman. My ex was a member of the progressive PM. We had some problems, so we split. I was involved in the 60s with SCS. Okay, thank you, Comrade. I think one big thing that wasn't mentioned in the late 60s and early 70s Part of the SDS was the draft. That was a big thing for people in my generation in the anti-war movement. Correct. Very, very good point. Very good point. I really appreciated bringing up the idea of the dialectics of the change from the old left to the new left in America, and also what Comrade brought up about there being no working class basis for these kinds of broadly intellectual movements. All right. Thank you, Comrade. What was the purpose for rallying behind the closure of, I forget the name, the university on Staten Island? It was a national thing. Nixon extended the war into Cambodia. Up until then, it was just in Vietnam. He extended it into Cambodia, and that alone was the thing that pushed everything. At the same time, if I remember this correct, there was two shootouts, one at a white university, Kent State, and one at a black university in the South, Jackson. And with the military, who made up a National Guard, came onto the campus and killed students. And so that was all part of that whole period of the Cambodia thing. I just want to mention that in addition to SDS, there was also the national movement of the Chicano movement, the moratorium that organized the Latino community because Latinos and blacks were being drafted in higher numbers, disproportionate numbers, and they were being killed in Vietnam in disproportionate numbers. And so they made this big protest. It started in high schools, and then it went into some of the colleges, and it got really big. It eventually led to the death of the columnist, the TV reporter, Ruben Salazar. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.